CLS is go for main engine start. Go at throttle up. Negative return. Then we see a nominal Miko. Welcome to space. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to Off Nominal. I got new music. Is everyone digging the music? I swapped it all out this morning. It is supposed to be something new and fresh. I realized it's funny because we, we have the same stuff going like every show. And I went to look to see like, have we changed that recently? And it was like two years ago that we swapped it out. So I decided to have a special treat for everyone today. Uh, welcome to two people uh, new to the, new to, newish to the show. Anthony's away this week. Uh, so I have Deborah Das co-hosting again. Welcome, Deborah. Great to have you back. Uh, and then our guest of honor, Jamie Green. Welcome to the show, Jamie. It's great to have you. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to talk about your book. Um, it's uh, The Possibility of Life, which is, uh, it was, so I got to tell you, it was like a super um, digestible and interesting and broad in scope kind of read. Like it was not what I expected it to be. I went into it like totally oh, cool. ready to go after like, like a, a space-based book because this is the you know this is the mm. space show and then there was lots of space stuff in it but there was all this other stuff in it too and I was kind of like uh, it it took me in a new place that I didn't expect to go but I loved it so I'm really really stoked to talk about it today. Um, Thank you. Yeah, well, do some drinks first. That's always kind of the the top of the show here. Who wants to start? Anyone got anything uh, interesting going on? Oh, I'll start. I have right, my right. very favorite um, Mars and no, it's not Mars Sun and Moon mug. Uh, my okay. beverage was hot, but now it's an eclipse because my beverage has cooled down. I'm drinking oh, a milk okay. oolong, which is which kind of just like blows my mind. It is literally tea leaves that kind of smells like milk. So, yeah. Ooh. <laughs> That's awesome. That sounds really good. Excellent. Yeah. I Highly recommend. Um, that sounds good. I am, I am drinking a very large, very large jar. I started drinking water out of these. It's probably like a like a 30 ounce jar when I had COVID <laughs> last winter. Um, and I just, I find it very satisfying. Um, and it's pink because it's, I'm like weirdly into these little like hydration packets. Wow. Yeah. The brand I like is Hydrant, not sponsored. But um, I mean, I don't know <laughs> if it's actually more hydrating, um, but these are ones that like, they don't have any artificial sweetener, which I don't like the taste of. So it just makes it like easier to chug. You know, yeah. like, is it like making it, is it just that it's sweet and tasty? Yes. But I like to tell myself that it's like extra hydrating. I don't know. Okay. Hey, well, I mean, you're drinking you more right? <laughs> because it's tasty. Yeah, it is extra hydrating. Yeah. So extra hydrating. True. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is. you can't yeah. go the 30 ounce jar. There's not really any escape from being hydrated <laughs> after that. That's a lot of water. That is true. That's extremely true. <laughs> you could put vinegar in it and you'd probably still be hydrated. <laughs> Um, I went full tropical today, so I have, Ooh. Um, Ooh. Oh, man, that looks good. Yeah. You so win the I beverage like, prize. Oh, thanks. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll sing. So I, I've got just like some normal like rum and like grenadine and pineapple juice in here. But I also got, so I brought this back from Portugal. I was just in Portugal. So this is Ooh. like a cool oh. banana liqueur. They make some sort of, I don't know, special kind of bananas there of some kind. Um, and then I mixed in this. This is a local thing from where I am in Mexico here. This is a coconut liqueur from Casa nice. de Aristi in Yucatan. So I put that in there and I got like, you know, just uh, all the different kind of tropical things going on here. So I went for it, so. I, I would like to hydrate, yeah, I would like to hydrate with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know if a 30 ounce jar yeah. of that would be hydrated. No, no. <laughs> yeah. But you'd feel great though, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's working. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, Jamie, let's maybe just start start with you a little bit. Um, uh, sure. W what's your job? Where did you come from? And why did you, <laughs> why did you choose to write a, a book about life and space, of all things? Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I'm a, a freelance writer. I don't have a PhD. I have a, my master's in creative nonfiction. Um, but I've always loved science. Um, for a while in high school, I talked about going to college to be a theater and physics double major, largely because I thought that sounded cool, but also because like I did love physics and science and like 
you know, learning about particle physics from Nova specials and things like that. Um, but I didn't do enough of my calculus homework senior year. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh no, you really have to did. do all the homework. <laughs> right. But then I was like, never mind. So that was the end of studying math for me. Um, but I'd always, always loved this stuff. And then when I was in graduate school, we had to do a semester long research project where we would pick a topic to research and write from it. And I wanted to write about the Voyager golden record. And my professor said, go bigger, write about aliens. I was like, well, that's a lot bigger. Um, <laughs> but I did. And I, um, talked my way into an undergrad astronomy class at the university on exoplanets and astrobiology, even though calculus was a prereq for that class. Um, the professor very generously let me in because I had to take it past fail anyway. So I was like, I will brush up enough so that I can understand the calculus you're talking about. But then he, he wrote me problem sets for the calculus heavy section of things that were like word problems um, or short answer stuff, which I just, Really appreciated, but anyway, that was like the be the beginning of it, um, and I loved learning about it and writing about it. And I was like, I want to write a book about this. I want to write a book about the search for life in the universe. And then I would do the thing that a lot of writers do when you have a book idea, where you go to the bookstore and you visit the shelf that's like your book's future home. <laughs> and I went to the astronomy shelf, and then there were like already four books on this on the shelf. And, and they were all written by astronomers and astrophysicists. And I was like, gotta, this is not the book I can write because it's already been written and by people with more expertise. So I sort of put it away for a while. And then a few years after I finished grad school, um, a friend was looking to commission essay series on culture topics. And I was like, what about aliens from a cultural point of view? And she said, yes. Um, and it was while I was working on that and writing one of the essays, it was the one about like putting sci-fi and science in conversation and asking scientists who like SETI scientists and astrobiologists what they think of these various sci-fi representations of aliens. And I just like, I, I just wanted to keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. And that was when I realized that what was interesting and exciting to me was writing about this as a question, not as a question of like, how do we find this stuff? Where is it? you know, what are the odds, but about looking at it as a question of imagination and like, what are all the possibilities? Yeah, yeah. Well, and your book does a good job of exploring that too. And the sci-fi thread runs all the way through it, which I found super interesting yeah. about it because there was like a bunch of sci-fi mentioned in it that I like knew very well. And I was going, oh yeah, that's exactly what this is about. And then there was a bunch of stuff I yeah. had no idea about. And so now I got to go and like, now you, this reading list book re gave me a reading list. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're well, I mean, it's like, you know, terrible homework. It's like, here's a China Mieville book you might not have read. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, researching it was really fun because I'd be like, oh, I have to read a fantastic sci-fi novel now during yeah. work hours. Yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. I drink on YouTube for a living, so it's really Right. Oh, wow. You know, that's pretty, it's surprising to um, uh, have you go from being afraid of the sky to, to a job like that. I don't know if you want to tell that story. Yeah, yeah. So like that's, you know, that's how I opened the book. Um, and it's true. Like when I was a little kid, I was scared of the night sky. It was like an extension of fear of the dark, you know, but it was just like the most dark, the biggest dark. Um, and I, I'm still easily spooked, but through learning about astronomy and through connecting to the idea of space through sci-fi, like looking at the stars, you know, I'm realizing also part of it is like now knowing what I know about astronomy and exoplanets, looking at the stars, it's not as alien anymore. It's not mysterious. Like you look at any star and odds are there's a planet around it. And like, I know what planets are. I live on a planet. It's so much more familiar. And when I look at the planets, like I can recognize most of them. I just sort of have a hunch like, oh, that's probably Saturn. That's pro you can usually tell when it's Venus or Mars. Um, and so like that sort of not, you know, it's funny, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but something I've heard from people who know me and know my writing and hear about the book is that they're going to read it even though they're scared of space. Um, and I think that like that vastness still spooks a lot of people, even in adulthood. Um, that it's like kind of scary to think about how small we are, but 
I, th I think the book kind of does the opposite and hopefully makes you feel like more connected with the cosmos and like it's a little bit more familiar. Yeah, yeah, I, I can feel that for sure. It was, um, <laughs> it's funny because you sometimes I feel like you can go through that phase where like it starts as like very unknowable, like the, you know, the yeah. universe and then that's scary and then you get to know it and it becomes less scary for that reason. But also now like, you know, I can look up and do the same thing. I'll look up at a point of light and it's like, oh, it's Mars. And I'm, then I'm like, I everything I know about Mars like rushes into my head. I'm like, that is a whole other place, like a, a literally yeah. another planet, a whole planet worth of stuff that you have to learn about. And then that can be very overwhelming too. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember, and I think I talk about this in the book too, the first time that I saw Saturn through a telescope where like I'd seen plenty of pictures of Saturn. It's no, right that's not for all a, about. For someone right? looking at a telescope. But then like <laughs> you see the point of light in the sky and then you look through the telescope and you see it. And so you realize that it's not just a picture of something. It's that thing that you're looking at in the sky and to, even though it's a two-dimensional image, like it just feels different. It feels we're like, oh my god, that's Saturn. <laughs> that's it's there. It's real. You know, it like really hits you in a different way. I think your feelings about sci science is what most comes out in your book. I think this was at reading it as a scientist was struck me is what struck me the most. As there's this one part where you say that life is just really hard to define and scientists just find it really hard to accept that life is literally just a vibe you know like you know it when you see it it's a vibe and you right. can't really define it and you write so much about your feelings about scientific discovery and how it is you know really peppered with um the personalities of humans and our imaginations and that's i think that was the first time where I f it felt so relatable, you know, like because in science, we're just always um, kind of conditioned to remove the emotions of how we feel about yeah. the science, but have the motivation ready when we're writing proposals. But this was like, right. <laughs> this was just like, ah, this is like super cool. So yeah, I just wanted to really point it out. It's not just about science. It's about the humanity, the empathy, the complexity yeah, yeah, of yeah. human life itself, which like, chef's kiss <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you i'm so glad and like yeah i hope that that's part not that like books about space by scientists aren't emotional but like that's what i can bring to it because i'm also like i'm an outsider i don't do scientific research i don't have to live through the sort of like monotony or struggle of that where like at some point it's just doing a lot of math yeah. Like you're not sitting there feeling feelings about Saturn all the time. There's a lot of other stuff. It's like your your job, you know? And so for me, even though writing about it is my job, I think having that distance of never having been like a lab scientist um, lets it stay a little more magical for me, even though I talk to a lot of researchers, um, you know, I learn a lot about their about their research, but it was really fun, like, trying to make them be a little more speculative, you know, cause something I talk about in the book is like, once we get, get past thinking about what microbes might be like, like no one's writing papers about that. There's like, you know, maybe like one or two like fun speculative papers, but that's not the work of science. Um, you don't get funding for that. And so to say like, okay, but like, what do you think? Yeah. But like, but like, what do you think? Like when you're not like, what do you think? And yeah, like yeah. really teasing that out. I remember it's 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 really easy to like when you're when you're in the science world and just like you know reading papers and talking about science and going to science conference like it's easy to get lost in that. I remember when the um, when the phosphine news hit at Venus and it was mm -hmm. you know it was like well, big big deal and then that embargo had gotten broken and so we we're all kind of watching it. And I remember like one of my like uncles had texted me like oh, I heard about this Venus thing like. You know, what do you think is going to happen? You know, what was the question? And I was like, still like in the zone. I'm like, well, so there's this paper that came out, and then they're going to really critique it. And then the other papers are going to come back, and they're going to counter it. Uh, if you go to, you know, the, I'm sure it's going to be really lit at Absicon. It's going to be awesome to go. To those sessions there. And he was like, no, he's no, like, like no, what do you think is no. going to happen though? And I was like, oh, he's not asking about that. <laughs> so you know, there's like a different, there's a different perspective you can take on all this, and that's what I thought was really interesting about the book is it, it just, it kept, it brought me up out of the 
I'll, I won't say a sewer, but you know, you're up out of the out of the muck of of, of the the day to day kind of science stuff. So, yeah. yeah, that was really good. <laughs> It also adds a really important perspective that a lot of scientific definitions are based on what we already know and what mm -hmm. our limitations are based on humans. And one thing that came up over and over again when you were going through all the depictions of alien life and what we define as life is based on what we know. And we just kind of yeah. hit a wall when we want to do more work on it. And, you know, when you're trying to be extremely kooky about like, you know, what something could look like, like you mentioned silicone based lives. Uh, and if they breathe, mm -hmm. like imagine them breathing out sand because we breathe out carbon dioxide, like who would fund that, right? Science is based on what right. our <laughs> imaginations are limited to and what is already funded what we already know so it's like a repetition over and over again of things we already know so that was extremely yeah. refreshing to read <laughs> yeah and it's like it's like all these incremental steps like today the like jwst round two proposal funding came out and like i was seeing on twitter that no proposals about exomoons got funded and it's like because that's like such a feels like such a far bridge but it's like that's such a cool question too and yeah. i know that like there is only so much telescope time but yeah like the weirder more out there like you you it's really hard to get leaps funded you have to do like this step mm -hmm. and then this step like all of these little baby steps um and it is really constrained by what we know i mean that's that's like the fundamental problem is the n equals one problem you know it's yeah. like any guess any extrapolation any prediction is just based off earth and like we don't know if we are average or we are weird or we are the only ones like we just do not know and no matter how much people will say like well surely and all, it's like no yeah we not well surely like <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, there, I liked the part there was a, a mention you were talking about language and stuff, and, you know, whether like how do we communicate with if aliens if we ran into them? And um, I can't remember the book now. I have to refresh my memory, but where they had the aliens that had two mouths and that was part of the like it had it to was, be, that was Embassy Town by China Mayville. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there, there was like a concurrency to their language, like you had to talk to two things at the same time. That's and then if there was only one stream. They didn't know what you were saying. And I was like, well, it's like such a right. mind bender to think about like. And those are the sort of weird leaps you have to try and, you know, be open to if you if you want to, I don't know, do this as a job, I guess, like and want to look for life. But yeah, man, I, I, don't know. I, I got stretched all over the place in this book. And I, <laughs> I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like, like even I there's like a, <laughs> yeah, there's there's like um, in the language section, I bring in a, a quote from Noam Chomsky, where he's basically saying that, like, if an alien language sort of. There's, we don't know if let's say let's say they're intelligent aliens and they use they communicate maybe they even talk or they write or whatever it's possible that learning an alien language will be just like learning another human language like for me learning chinese or whatever and it's just like you learn it like a language right and that's what most sci-fi depictions of communicating with aliens are like that's what arrival is like that's what the sparrow is like um, you know, you just like learn the language and you learn to speak it. Humans can learn to speak Klingon, right? But there's also the possibility that there will be something so fundamentally different in what their communication system is that instead of learning it like a language, we would have to like untangle its secrets, like learning physics. Like it'll be the work of like decades and decades of scholarship of like that it just wouldn't be a language to us and i think that like those sort of slow processes of understanding it actually reminds me a lot of what you're saying about phosphine that like the general public thinks that when we find alien life it's going to be aha full stretch headline on the new york times alien life found right and instead it's nothing went wrong <laughs> with the phosphine story no. some people thought they saw phosphine which like it's so hard for me as a layperson to even imagine what a like work of interpretation that is. It's not like they were like, boom, phosphine. It's like really interpreting the data. It's like close reading, you know? Um, so they thought they saw phosphine and they were in the paper very cautious about like, 
we don't think we know how else this could be made, which could mean life, but, 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 but. But then the correct scientific process is scrutiny and reinvestigation and debating. And in this case, it was like, oh, the phosphine wasn't even really there, yeah. I think, <laughs> right? Like that's probably- that's, that's kind of where I ended up Probably, <laughs> allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Um, but like, if there was life in the clouds of Venus producing phosphine, like that would have played out exactly the same, except then like we would still be going. And it's the same thing for SETI signals, unless it's like a message is like, hello, earthlings, what's up? You know, like in contact, um, it's gonna be more like, oh, we think we got a signal. It seems technological. We have to spend a year proving that it, figuring out that it didn't come from Earth, that it wasn't the microwave down the hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, at which I think there like definitely was a case of a steady false alarm that was a microwave. Um, like it would be like intermittent, and they realized it was when someone was heating up their their yeah, dinner. Yeah. Um, Making popcorn so it's, in the break it's room just, like you're not supposed to. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like I'm observing right now. Um, yeah, it, but it's just like we we sci-fi has primed us to think and we want it to be easy and aha and just like oh, I found you, but that's just not how discoveries work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Sorry. No, that's, that's great. <laughs> no, and, and you know, and I think about that phosphine discovery. And I, I I watched the like the live stream they did, like they did like a you know a press briefing thing that they. Yeah. To, to to break the embargo, you know, to to end the embargo, and um, I I remember being like really impressed with how they handled it because like all the scientists were just like, look, like we are absolutely not saying, and we just like we've run out of things to try and figure out, so like we just wrote it all down in a paper, and now we're giving it all to you to find the holes in it, and we just like we can't get yeah. there. Like it was the most responsible way to handle something like that, I thought. <laughs> but yeah, like, it doesn't and like go even that way. still, <laughs> every, like the vibe on Twitter was oh my God, there might be life on Venus. Yeah. Because of course it is, but then it's like people start getting disappointed and so many more people paid attention that day than paid attention to the handful of papers that trickled out, sort of poking holes and saying like, mm, 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 probably yeah. not, probably not. Same thing with um, the breakthrough listing candidate signal, which was like just a couple months after the phosphine news, I think, which was another leak where before they were ready to say anything, I think the Guardian or someone leaked that they had found a signal of technological origin and they were working and it, it turned out to be from Earth, but it took like a year to find out. And there were no headlines when yeah, yeah. they announced that they had figured out that it was from Earth, like literally none. I found out about it because someone was like tweeting a, like a conference presentation. Like that was the news. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the, it's not as, uh, you know, it's not as sexy the other way around, right? <laughs> right, right. Of course not. And it's not as sexy to, to make the headline like scientists have have exhausted all of the plausible mechanisms for phosphine that they can think of. <laughs> right. No one cares about. That. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. though. It's so true. <laughs> We don't, what happens... the, we don't want the negative result. <laughs> right, no. But what happens one day when, you know, let's say right now we are kind of at the cusp of like, okay, maybe there was a signal of phosphine. What if one day we do find like, you know what? Yeah, there is life and it's not terrestrial. I really found your perspective in the book where you said that I think humanity is going to lose their collective shits. I mean, to put it very crassly, <laughs> once we kind of do yeah. realize that, oh, we are, there is more than us now. And is, do you think like we'll all just have this existential crisis of, oh, where do you, what do you think about that? Like, what if we did <laughs> and what, where, what do you think would happen if we did find something like headlines? Oh, we have found extraterrestrial life. Right. I mean, I think it really depends if it's like microbial life or a biosignature or a SETI signal. You know, I think that proof of biological life versus proof of technology or intelligent life is going to feel really different. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I mean, it's funny, you know, like in contact, Carl Sagan imagines, which is like the most directed version of discovery where it's like a message to earthlings with like, that we can decipher it was instructions for building a mysterious machine he shows that as like triggering a lot of spiritual 
crises and revolutions and basically nuclear disarmament. Like it's everything that he and his generation of like the first SETI researchers hoped that that discovery would bring about on earth, that it would be really meaningful because of course they want it to be really meaningful. It's like their life, life's work. But then when I talked to um, current SETI researchers who are like a generation or two younger, a lot of, which is also like Sagan and Jill Tarter and those folks always would talk about finding a message about being welcomed into the galactic community. Now SETI researchers are like much more agnostic. They're just looking for proof of technology. They do not expect a directed message. They're just hoping to maybe eavesdrop or like, you know, find yep. proof that someone once w- was there and built something that, that the universe doesn't build on its own. Um, and they were like, no, I don't think anyone's really going to care. <laughs> like, I don't really see it changing. Not that no one's going to care, but that they don't see it changing anything really big on earth. Yeah. Um, and it's true. Like, I think it will matter to some people, mm-hmm. but on a like cultural civilizational scale, people have a lot of stuff to worry about. And then like when people are like, oh, this will show humanity that we're not all so different and bring us together or inspire us to stop climate change or whatever. It's like, we already know <laughs> those things. We already know that we're doing bad things. Um, and we shouldn't wait for a big booming voice from the sky mm-hmm. to tell us. Um, but the other thing that I think is really interesting on that question is something I learned in my research and really had like put starkly was for most of modern history in the West, like since the Renaissance, I would say, which I realize is not, yeah, I guess we call that early modern. So yeah, we, more of that time than not has been spent just taking for granted that there's life on other worlds. Mm -hmm. It's only in the last like 100, 150 years that as we've learned more, we've realized that Venus is not hospitable. Mars is not hospitable. Mars is not inhabited. A hundred years ago, we thought there were canals on Mars. Yeah, because of a a translation error, right? From the Italian for channel. It was not that long Um, ago. Like that was like, yeah. Right. Like you could go to the movie theater or you could say, "Mm, yep, there's life on Mars. Like at the same time, you could drive in a car and driving in a car say like, yes, we take it for granted that there's life on Mars. Um, And even until the Viking landers there, some scientists reasonably thought that like they were just going to find life, like grass, microbes, whatever. It's like, yeah, Mars, chill. Great. We're going to find stuff. And so (laughs) someone mentioned that to me once that like, you could reasonably think that you were going to find like macro scale life when Viking landed. But it, it was like an aside in a, in a conversation. So it's not like, I don't have a citation for it. Um, So so it's really in the last hundred years, most of the scientific discoveries and advances that we've made have made the universe seem less inhabited and less habitable, except for exoplanets. That's really one where like a hundred years ago, we did not know how, we didn't have a clear model of planet formation. We didn't know if planet formation was a fluke. Mm And especially the first half of the 20th century, that was the reigning point of view that planets were formed by like the near miss between two stars and the gravity would pull off some of the um, matter of the star and that would form planets. And so that's like not now we know that planet formation is sort of like a just a byproduct of star formation and that they're everywhere. But it blew my it blows my mind to think about that the first exoplanets were discovered in the 90s. That is also so yeah. recently. And for a long time, That's we had so like 12. Recent. Like there just wasn't that many. Now. Right. Right. Yeah. And now and now it's but, but now it's like I love telling people like you point at a star, any star in the sky, odds are it has a planet. Yeah. That's cool. That that's when you're like, well, surely. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, surely. No, you throw that question very well as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah Sorry. It's, no, it's it's great. I, it's funny to think about, you know, that hypothetical of like, what do we do when, when the Vulcans land and step off their spaceship in front of, you know, Zephyr Cochran and, and do this. But um, I, I don't know. I kind of think this like when it does happen, if it does happen, it's going to be like just way more boring than that. Um, because, oh, yeah. Because they're not going to be here. No, no. We're going to find <laughs> it's it out gonna there. It's going to be a signal. Yeah. And then like, it's going to take time to decipher. 
we're not going to be having a back and forth conversation. It's going to be like very slow pen pals. And like, you're probably not going to be alive for the answer no. if they catch it. Like, it's it's like trying to be, you know, I think I say in the book, it's like trying to be pen pals with Queen Elizabeth the first. But it's really like trying to be pen pals with Queen Elizabeth the first by throwing paper airplanes at her and hoping she catches it. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. If, like, the, ugh, yeah. It just makes me nervous to think about because it's like it's going to be real hard and real slow and real confusing. Well, and like even if we find, um, you know, even something close to home, like you know, Deborah, if you you zap something with a laser down there and you find you find something under a rock on Mars, and it's like there are, you know, like that process is such a. Uh, a time-consuming scientific process because the instruments are, you know, very narrow and focused. Like the scope of what they do is like it, it does one thing and it looks for this one reading and then it gets that reading and that's what the instrument does. And so like you're going to see something that like maybe if you squint a little bit, it kind of looks like and then you have to go through that whole scientific process. It's going to be, you know, it's going to require like two, three follow-on missions to confirm that. It's going to take decades to, to actually Right, like even if you fast-track a Mars mission, yeah. it's just like, and and it's like we'll just send a person there and let them pick up the rock and look but also like that's a whole thing and then what lab are you sending with them like just and also yeah. then and this is i'm like i'm like nervous about this <laughs> like if there's life on mars it's very possible that it's just like a couple pockets here and there right it doesn't seem to be everywhere so what if one mars rover picks up a rock gets an interesting reading 20 years later another mars rover picks up the rock next to it and can't find anything and it's just like <laughs> yeah 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 that's kind of also i mean i think that's like an not an issue really but every mars rover mission the, the key question is finding life and I think what you talked about when you were saying that, you know, we used to think that there's grass on Mars, but with the the with more understanding of it, I, now I realize what you mean by like, it, we get lonelier and lonelier when we realize like, no, there is no grass, but then we also it's start, <laughs> it's just rock, but we also start <laughs> refining where we might find life. Like now we know there was underground water activity in Gale Crater on Mars. So maybe that's, so it's like we, with understanding it a little bit more, we have so many places we still haven't looked at, which still might have that yeah. possibility. So I think that's- We've like yeah. barely scratched the exactly. surface. Yeah. So like that is exciting, but there mm -hmm. are a lot of possibilities, both mm -hmm. in terms of within the solar system, trying to detect biosignatures from exoplanets, SETI, like all of this is just like, barely scratched the surface. And so that's, you know, when people are like, oh, the Fermi paradox, where is everyone? It's like, there could be a base on Venus that we don't know about. <laughs> there could be probes in the out. It's not like we can see everything in the outer solar system, you know, like there. So like we, we know so little, but um, we also know so little about life on earth. I don't know. It's there's, it's exciting. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. It's exciting true. and like, you know, um, it's the kind of thing that it doesn't exactly make me wish that I could like go back and be a scientist because I don't think that that's, but there's just so many exciting questions. Yeah. Um, but that makes it hard to think that we're necessarily on the verge of the big answer when we've got all these other little questions first. Yeah, it's going to be boring. I'm telling you, it's going to be, <laughs> gonna be so a boring. long series of papers that are indecipherable <laughs> to the common person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Speaking, um, speaking, of, speaking of life on earth is that what you were gonna say yes that's, that's gonna exactly say. what i was gonna say <laughs> i, have I to just wanted about this yeah this stupid thing uh this <laughs> so is that um analoma caris yes I, I like i stopped in my tracks when i read this because i was just like you, you know you describe this weird alien looking thing and um, and like they, I have to go see that. Excuse yeah. And so, so the name. Okay. So we, you know, this show is called Off Nominal. We call our listeners anomalies. And so, like right away, this anomalocaris, which is like when it's supposed to be like weird shrimp or something, like off nominal shrimp is basically what it means. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I, I have to ask about this because you can tell a little story about it. But and then we can we can go on a little further. But yeah, what what the heck is this and why why was it important to your story? So it's funny. So this is a part of the book that I don't think anyone has asked me to talk about in interviews before so i have to make sure i remember this <laughs> okay is this the, this is the thing from the burgess shale right yes 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 okay so the burgess shale is oh man i have not gone back to this part of the book in a long time <laughs> um 
basically it's it's a really good fossil record of soft-bodied creatures Mm. right so it's like a and and it's a lot of a lot of little freaks where most of them like don't or rather it's taken researchers decades to figure out what's going on there because it's a lot of smushed little soft guys and a lot of weird body plans that we don't see at like later in the fossil record um and so it's an important moment for thinking about whether evolution is convergent or um random right so like you can find ancestors of like the body plans that we see on earth now but you also see lots of little freaks who went extinct soon after and it's like there's no reason to think that the familiar body plans outcompeted the weird ones. It really could just be like the weird one got eaten or, or a rock fell on a weird one. I mean, I guess they were underwater, so a rock falling on you doesn't hurt that much. But um, anyway. Or are so, they only that weird because like, we're the ones that won? Right, right, right. Exactly. That there's no, there's no reason to think that they were evolutionary, evolutionarily, that they were like outcompeted. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, could we all be like weird little multi-legged flying carpets like that guy. Um, it's, or, you know, and, and there are arguments for like, if you have, well, that one is bilaterally symmetrical. So like being bilaterally symmetrical, there's, that's very logical that if you're built by dividing cells, you know, one cell into two cells, you're going to have that symmetry of a left and a right where your sides match. Like even on a starfish, right? You can cut a line down the middle and fold it in half and it lines up. Um, But everything else about insects having six legs, mammals or vertebrates having four limbs, like a lot of that is just like, that's who didn't get eaten last Tuesday. (laughs) And that's who kept going. Um, But this is really important for thinking about if there is something analogous to animal life on another planet, there is scientific, there are scientific arguments you could make that because of convergent evolution, the same things that are successful in evolution on earth would be successful there. Just like, you know, humans and octopus evolved lensed eyes totally independently. So like me and bats and birds and plants have evolved the ability to make caffeine like four different times because that's useful. So would life on another planet stumble onto the same solutions? Are these the ideal solutions or is it just about like who got eaten and who didn't and who, you know, lived to be the grandfather to everything? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's a, that's a good theme for the whole kind of book really is like, is, you know, is life a a happy accident, you know, that, that just sort of, it happened once and that was like a stroke of luck and then here we are or is it the natural chemical end stage of of like just the like you put you put a bunch of matter in a universe eventually it's just going to turn into into you know uh garbage men and and, and pizza pit people like you know like this, it's just going to turn yeah into that. but um yeah no it was really which is like a really a really lovely way to think like when you're thinking about what is life even though you know entropy and the second i think law of third thermodynamics whichever one it is aside like the entire history of the universe is the universe figuring out how to you know like out of the big bang we get particles and atoms and molecules and clouds of dust and stars and galaxies like the universe does for some reason create order and what life does is like create little bubbles of more complexity and more order and more information. And so you can see that, like you can see your existence or like you writing a sentence or coming up with a new idea. This creation of new order and novelty is like the entire legacy of the universe rather than seeing life as isolated on our planet or humanity as alone because we're intelligent and have no one else to talk to. Like, we're just what the universe does, um, which I don't know. I find that to be a nice way to think about it, even though that doesn't that like still leaves open a lot of scientific questions about like what is life and what makes it do what it does, which we don't have answers for. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you because you, you, one of the chapters you do is, is on technology, which I, I found a really important kind of chapter in this because you know we're we're now very much in the thick of this whole AI thing and what what is AI? Yeah. And is it you know is it actually taking us on the path to some sort of singularity or is it really just like a fancy digital assistant that can help you schedule? Yeah, things? I don't know yet. I, I don't know. I mean, where like, we are I feel yet. like <laughs> I definitely I've been like trying to train myself to call Chat GPT and all these current things machine learning and not AI because yeah. there's no intelligence there. These are clever plagiarism algorithms, right? Like they, and, and you know, like when ChatGPT strings together a novel sentence, people are like, oh no, it's sentient. But when Midjourney makes a hand with 11 fingers, we're not like, ooh, it invented something novel. We're like, it doesn't know how to make hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it is like, we do feel like there's there's something happening, but what it feels like now is not the threat of this intelligence. It's much more like the threat of how capitalism is using it. Like the writer's strike right now is is so much about making sure that writers don't get replaced by AI in the service of making mediocre crap that still makes money, right? Like it does just like the origin of life come back to this idea of novelty and creating new things, which like, machine learning right now cannot do and humans can but capitalism doesn't care so like you know when we when we think about dystopian visions of the post-singularity future or we think about like you know the i write about the matrix and sort of the backstory of the matrix in the book which is covered in a couple of animated shorts in the animatrix um it's not that the machines were evil and wanted to take over the machines in the matrix wanted to be respected and humans said no and they only turned humans into batteries because humans used nuclear bombs to like cloud up the skies so that they couldn't get solar power anymore um and like what's going on now is not that like the machines are so smart it's that machine learning is like allowing some of humanity's worst impulses to (laughs) take over rather than valuing what's challenging. It's like this, the human like drive for ease and profit instead of, yeah. It's short term, right? It's very, very, very. Yeah. They're not taking over. It's like capitalism's taking over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it was interesting because it was like, um, even in the in the scope of technology, I mean, AI is the thing that stands out to us, you know, in, in today's world as what we would what we would classify that as. But there, even the book even goes through different kind of you know examples of different you know what technology might a technological life might look like, and and you know, and again, you bring in all the sci-fi stuff, which is uh, also very very interesting. Um, so yeah, no, I, I found that very very cool to to sort of explore that in broader detail than just I don't know tweets i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah. <laughs> nice thing about books yeah, they're longer than tweets they are longer than <laughs> tweets significantly some might mm. say <laughs> yeah uh, yeah um i don't know I, I i'm curious to see your perspective on um like what you what you pulled from this experience like you know so you went into this knowing a little bit about these things enough that you were like, I, I can write a book about it. And then you yeah. did all the research, wrote the book, the book's out. Now you're here talking to us. What, what's most different about you after this experience? What, what surprised you about your research? Where did you end up? Um, I mean, I, I don't know if it's because I've just sort of like gotten to the end of this project, but I feel, I, I, I sort of, care less about whether or not there's actually life on other worlds (laughs) i feel less attached to that and i write about this in the book that when i was um work when i was doing my research about i have a chapter about planets and that's like the section that i came into it knowing the most about for better or for worse it made it like harder in some ways because i had taken that class um at columbia and i was a writer for astrobytes for a couple years astrobytes is a website that's staffed by graduate students other than me, it was graduate students in astronomy and astrophysics who write um, like 
summaries of new research papers aimed at an undergrad audience so that like an undergrad in physics or astronomy can learn about new research. So I had like immersed myself in exoplanets and astrobiology for a couple years that way. So I was researching this chapter and I was talking to Abel Mendez who studies habitability and like maintains the habitable exoplanets catalog. And that's with habitability just as the right size and the right distance from the sun. Like what would (laughs) be rocky (laughs) would have liquid water. Like that's it. That's astronomy really backed itself into a corner with calling that habitability because a layperson is like, sweet, I'll pack my bags. I'll be right there. Um, But he started out as um, an astrophysicist and then got into astrobiology. And I asked him, like, I asked, every scientist that I interview in the book, you know, like, what do you think? What do you think might be out there? What would it mean to you? And he was like, I don't care. I was like, you what? And he said, I I don't really care. I was like, but why are you? What? Um, And what he told me was that the more he learns about astrobiology, the more he learns about life on earth and the more he appreciates life on earth. And I was like, okay, buddy, cool. I'm going to keep writing my book. And then by the time I finished researching the book, I felt the exact same way (laughs) where I was just like, because I came into this knowing a a decent bit about astrobiology and about SETI. um, But I learned a lot of new stuff about evolutionary biology, about the study of the origin of life, which I've always been really fascinated by, which I feel like sort of is connected to astrobiology because they both require looking for life and thinking about what life is, which, you know, as we mentioned, we don't have a good understanding of. Um, And just learning about like all the, it just feels magical. Like even the simplest cell is so complex. Um, And I read some work by a chemist named Nick Lane, who's a beautiful writer who studies the origin of life. And he has this amazing description of how a molecule of, of, of how, um, ATP is created in your mitochondria. And he just like, you visualize it with these just like massive molecules shuttling electrons around by quantum tunneling because it's that small. And all of this just to move a proton from like one side of a membrane to the other, you know, and that's how all life on earth, how all eukaryotic life on earth gets its energy. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, bacteria, <laughs> don't come for me. Um, and it's just this like magically huge, complex, beautiful systems that are happening in your cells all the time, thousands or millions of times a second. And like, it's so, I just like really fell in love with that stuff. I think part of it is because that was new to me, whereas the astronomy stuff wasn't. But um, it just really made me appreciate it's like a real Wizard of Oz moment where I just like really literally appreciate what's in my backyard. Like I see a bird and I'm like, oh my God, there is life on earth that flies. I sound, I sound like a stoner or a five-year-old. It just like really made me appreciate all the different ways that life can be. And there are so many different ways that life can be right on earth. So like, yes. I would give anything to know what life on another world is like, what the biology is like, what language an intelligent alien might speak. But um, there's a lot of cool stuff here too. Yeah, yeah. Also, I I know, which is another very recent shift in in the consensus. It's exoplanets. Birds are dinosaurs and plate tectonics are my three favorite, like very recent discoveries. Mm -hmm. Like in Jurassic Park, at the end of Jurassic Park, um, when they're on the helicopter leaving the island, the music is swelling and you see birds flying out the window, right? And what that is saying is those birds are related to dinosaurs, which at the time was like very edgy to put that in a movie. (laughs) And now everyone's fighting about why the dinosaurs don't have feathers in the sequels. And it's like, that's a huge, a huge shift. I just think that that's awesome. So it's dinosaurs and exoplanets and plate tectonics. Just, we didn't know so recently. There's so much still to learn. Also stuff that probably originated in something we take super granted for is like you talked about surface availability and transitional surfaces between 
water and air and water and land and ice and water. It's like transitional surface yeah. availability is life's love language or something. We need all yeah. of it. Like life, life needs a place to be. And so like when you're saying like, why couldn't there be life in the clouds of Jupiter? There could. And like Carl Sagan in Cosmos has a beautiful imagining of like what these sort of like floating creatures could be. Um, but and they would like move up and down by convection and sort of migrate and whatever. But there's nowhere for it to be to start. Yeah. And life really needs a surface because mm -hmm. whether it's you know like you get a lot of cool chemistry happening where two different phases meet or two different substances. But like you got to be somewhere to get started. Yeah, yeah. You can't be being carried through all these different environments and different mm -hmm. conditions when you're just starting out. Right. Um, so like there are, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things I grapple with in, in the book is like when we're looking for life elsewhere we're really looking for life as we know it on earth and to what extent is that a bias to what extent is that just starting gotta start somewhere and to what extent is that actually meaningful you know like is water actually necessary is a rocky surface and an atmosphere actually necessary um we can i was gonna say we can answer we can't answer any of those questions but we can make better you know, guesses on some than for others. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I guess we got to go to Europa then. <laughs> yeah. That, Lots of surfaces there. Let's go. There. I know, I love it. Or <laughs> Titan has even more. Yeah, yeah. Titan's pretty rad. Surface lakes. Dragonfly <laughs> coming up, coming up. Uh, okay, we're getting near the end here. What what didn't make it into the book? What uh, what research? That bit about Jurassic Park and Jurassic dinosaurs. Park. No um, Jurassic Park, no dinosaurs. Okay. <laughs> no Jurassic Park, no dinosaurs. That used to be the opening of the chapter about planets, and then I was like, this doesn't actually have anything to do with planets. taking a star off the um, Amazon review. No dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> there are no no. There is discussion of dinosaurs because in the chapter on evolution, I talk about um this sort of thought experiment that a scientist did in like the 1980s saying if the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct and they mm. had evolved into an intelligent creature anatomically, what would need to change? And he follows, he's like, well, if this, then that, and it looks a lot like a lizard man. <laughs> he's got legs, arms, <laughs> hands, head on top, butt cheeks. Cause it's like, well, once you're walking, you need strong muscles. Mm -hmm. He's got a butt. Pretty sure um, this is so a Doctor are... Who storyline. <laughs> <laughs> depends. Depends how good his butt is. Um, so yeah, there are there are dinosaurs in there. But so that little bit, like that idea about the birds and Jurassic Park, got cut. Um, I there there's a oh god, what was it called? There's a really cool fictional podcast. Oh no! Oh, it's called Tides that I listened to a bunch of and interviewed the um, the creators where it's like uh, set on an exoplanet and has a lot of really cool science brought into it. Um, like really ima like imagining out the implications of, of what this particular, I think it's a moon of a gas giant, but what it might be like and what the life might be like on it in these huge tidal zones. Um, and I wasn't able to fit that in. Um, I wanted to write about Neanderthals a little more. I mentioned them and the fact that, you know, we did have another intelligent species on earth at the same time as us for a while, two of them, if you count Denisovans, uh, which you should, I don't know why you wouldn't, but um, like going into the sci-fi thing, like I grew up reading Gene All with the Clan of the Cave Bear, which is the story uh, set 40,000 years ago. It's a story of a homo sapiens girl who's orphaned and is raised by Neanderthals. and I didn't I mention Neanderthals, but I don't get to go I don't get into Clan of the Cave Bear, but I did write an essay for Slate where a question I get a lot is who's your favorite alien? <laughs> and I have so much trouble coming up with an answer. And I realized the reason is that my favorite aliens, my favorite fictional aliens are the Neanderthals in Clan of the Cave Bear. Um, <laughs> because they really are just this, like vividly imagined alien intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, and it really functions like a sci-fi book in a lot of ways. There's a ton of world building. It's about that sort of making contact interaction. Um, so my love of Clan of the Cave Bear also did not make it into the book. 
All right. <laughs> yeah. That's good. My mom loves those stories. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, I just reread the first uh, four of them again because I reread Clan of the Cave Bear to write this essay. And then I just had to keep going. And it was so much fun to like reread the books that you were obsessed with as like a 12 or 14 year old because you click back into that kind of reading. And yeah, it's just yeah. that like yeah. living inside a book. So for, tell your mom she has good taste. For me, that, that book is, um, uh, it's called Raptor Red. It's a dinosaur book um, written by, yep. a, by a paleontologist imagining, a, you know, a, a, some sort of raptor dinosaur that has pretty pretty much intelligence. Like you go through, you know, all their... their sort be of a narrator, you gotta. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. Kind, of, it's kind of related now that I think about it. I'm, yeah. I'm seeing the through lines, seeing the through lines. Yeah. So um, where do people get the book if they want to if they want to learn more about uh, life in the universe? I mean, there it is. Everywhere. Uh, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Strongly encourage you to find your local independent bookstore. Um, you can order. That's the UK cover and the is the black one. US cover is the purple one. You can order signed copies from my local independent bookstore if you like, and I'll even personalize it if you want. Um, but yeah, anywhere it's sold. I recorded the audiobook myself too. Nice. Um, which is, yeah, so I had to learn how to pronounce all those things and then promptly <laughs> forgot. Um, whoops, put a lot of science in the book. Yeah, oops. Um, <laughs> I, even, I even found like a classic scholar who like sent me a voice memo of the Greek and Latin words, which I just really appreciated. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's everywhere, UK, US, Canada, I think probably Australia, New Zealand. I think that goes along with the UK. I don't know. We organize the world in weird, weird batches. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wherever, wherever the king is yeah. or has been, I think you can get the book. Yeah, we call that the Commonwealth back home. <laughs> right. But then, are we all? Yeah. But then, it's like you can also get it in the U.S. Even though we are very much not. Yeah, that's why. Don't have you, that's that why you get a different cover. relationship anymore. Yeah. But Canada gets the U.S. cover. Yeah. We're weird. We're weird in Canada. We're like, not quite Americans and not quite English. <laughs> but it's easy to just ship the books right up there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and whatever we are, we're very sorry about it. So, um, <laughs> Awesome. This is great. Uh, Deb Roddy, anything going on in your world? You want to give us a little update? Uh, you, you're doing any, any good papers coming out? What's going on? What's, what's yeah, I just submitted one. Um, and it, I think this, this book was really like me reading this book was really well-timed because um, I study past water activity on Mars and I look at all these like transitional surface areas where life could be possible. So it was just like amazing to read this. Uh, I did have a question, a very quick so one. Yeah. Thank you. It's like you, you've you um, interviewed so many science, scientists and you've met a lot of academics. If there was one thing as a non-academic that you felt like, oh, why aren't Ooh. scientists doing this or looking at it from this perspective or this is too cold and clinical, is there something that you it kind of came to you like, you know, I wish it was done this way? Have you ever experienced that in your journey? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think so. I was really lucky that I talked to a lot of really mostly really awesome people um there were a couple <laughs> other people um other people yeah we have those <laughs> no, I, I know i know um i don't think so i mean everyone was just so generous with their time and so thoughtful and like helped me find other people to talk to which is just you know like yeah, I'm just really grateful for all of that. Like going back to when I was in grad school and emailed the head of the astrobiology program at Columbia, Caleb Scharf, who's not at Columbia anymore. I was like, can I take your class? And he let me into the class, even though I couldn't do calculus. He wrote me problem sets. He like has stayed in touch. He's a source in the book. Like I couldn't have, I would not have written this book if he hadn't let me into that class. Like that started so much of it for me. Um, and so I don't know, I, other than people who are jerks sometimes and saying to them, don't be a jerk. They're not the ones who are listening. Yeah. Um, I, I just, <laughs> I, you know, in terms of like my interactions with them from the like writer or journalist side, I have just been like really wowed by everyone's generosity and openness. Um, so 
the one thing I don't think this is what you're asking, but we need to stop thinking about having a definition of life. That's useless. Yeah. <laughs> That's philosophically like philosophers are just like definitions are for language. They're not for scientific concepts. Um, so, like, we just need to stop worrying about that and come at it from a theoretical <laughs> side. But like, don't listen to me. Listen to Carol Cleland. Like she says that. So um, Fabulous. yeah, I don't know. I'm just I'm really grateful to have been let in to so many doors and stories in writing this book. Well, yeah. this has been uh, tremendous. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to give a shout out to my wife who recommended you to me. I had not heard of this book, and she said, "Yes, she, she said, told you me to, <laughs> you need to you need to get Jamie on because she's great, and her book is probably great." And it is. It was. It was awesome. So, um, yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. You definitely pick it up. Uh, it's. I'm very grateful to that. It is both a space book and not quite a space book, and it's lots of things. And I think it's a people book too. It's, it's a, a human book. book. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're all people, so yeah. we'll, we can relate. <laughs> That's how it goes. Thank you All so right. much. It's been it's been really fun to be here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, goodbye everybody. Bye. 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 I... Bye. <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. End of death.